Jonathan, is that another order of service sitting up there on top of that piano? <coughs> Great. Ah, I'm so used to the norm. If the order of service is a little bit off, it's going to throw me off. So I just want to make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and not confusing everybody else. That'd be bad. Isaiah chapter 9. Um, we're back in these names of God. We've got two left this week and then next week. And uh, one of those that honestly, as the, as the series has gone along, the more I've enjoyed studying it. Uh, so I'm going to read again, verses 1 down through verse 6, and then we're going to consider this morning, Everlasting Father. Um, I don't see it up. This might be a new problem. It's there? Okay, great. Definitely want to serve you that way. So Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As we dive forward, as we push forward, reminding our hearts that all of this is happening in this context of intense darkness and gloom, and yet here is the light. And so how is the Messiah going to bring this light and this hope? And this morning I think it might be helpful to think of the contrast of tyrants. Uh, Plato identified three characteristics of tyrants uh, that he said would be helpful for you to understand the way an evil man rules. He said tyrants will rule without the law. They really are a law as unto themselves. Uh, they do what they see fit to do and whatever they think is best. They look out for themselves and not their subjects. And so they use their power and their control in a way that only seeks to serve them. And then thirdly, they use cruel tactics to exercise power. And so whether we're talking about Cyrus or Xerxes or Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein or several of the pharaohs, it's remarkable how these guys rise to power. And typically, the way they rise to power is the same thing that ends up being their downfall. They tend to be very ambitious, gregarious kind of guys, uh, self-assured and confident. And, and so people are drawn to them and, and their sense of power that they have. Not recognizing that most, if not all, tyrants, while they are at one side narcissistic and it's all about them, they are at the same time incredibly, astoundingly insecure as people. And so they cannot stand anybody really questioning them, defying them, disagreeing with them. And so they tend to grow crueler and crueler in the way that they exercise their power and their authority. Really, it all becomes an abuse of their authority and power. The stories of tyrants throughout history, they're, they're frankly not even uh, appropriate for Sunday morning conversation, some of the things they do, to maintain their sense of power and authority. 
they would delight in hurting, torturing their enemies. Saddam Hussein would personally direct torture to be taken place. One ancient pharaoh began to distrust his right-hand advisor. Uh, his, his name was actually Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O. And so he invited his right-hand man to a dinner party. When his right-hand man arrived at the dinner party, he arrived to discover that the meal that had been prepared was the right-hand man's own son. It was a test of loyalty from the Pharaoh. Cruel, utterly wicked tyrants. Now, why do I begin with tyrants? Because uh, the nation of Israel had become very well acquainted with what it was like to be ruled by tyrants at various times. They had gone through these cycles we see beginning in the book of Judges, only to extend further along uh, of wicked kings one after another. They'd go from good king to bad king, good king to bad king. The reality is uh, under uh, Gideon's son, uh, Abimelech, they had experienced tyrants, which is what happens right on the heels of what Isaiah references. Uh, Abimelech is the guy, you remember, he kills 69 of his 70 brothers to take the land. Uh, He begins to rule in the northern regions in a land called Shechem. And as he's ruling in Shechem, eventually he begins to turn against those cities. In one city, he raises to the ground and salts the earth so nothing will ever grow there again. Another city, he's so angry at, he goes and he literally burns it with fire, killing over a thousand women and children at the same time. The people of Israel had said, Gideon, may your son and your grandson rule over us. Well, they ended up with one of his sons and they ended up with a tyrant, a kind of ruler that destroys you for the sake of their own ends. Now, Jesus comes, and we're told that he's going to come in a way, and he's going to rule in a way that's remarkably different. And so it's described to us in several terms, but the name we'll consider the most this morning is Everlasting Father, as an identification of the way that he will rule. You might think of it this way, uh, all along through these names, darkness of this world brings confusion, and so we need Jesus, the wonderful counselor. The darkness of this world brings powerlessness, and so we need the mighty God. Well, the darkness of this world also brings instability and suppression. But Jesus, as the everlasting Father, will bring eternal compassionate rule. When we consider Jesus as the ruler, and we use this title Father, I I start this message very well aware that some of you may have had very wicked fathers. And so the term Father can be painful to hear and difficult and and almost triggering to ascribe to god because your father was so bad all along the way and throughout my life as as i've met with people or counseled people or discipled people or or just even read and heard of the struggles of folks who've lived under abusive or domineering or maybe even as it described a tyrant that described your earthly father what i've always discovered is children long for a good father though no matter how bad your dad was you would have wanted a really kind, loving, good leading father. And so I want to encourage your heart this morning that God says that he is even the father to the fatherless, that he cares for the weak and the vulnerable. And so instead of this morning maybe being a painful journey of thinking of where your father lacks, but instead understand how King Jesus rules and live and embrace that reality this morning. Because while darkness will bring suppression and instability, Messiah, as the everlasting Father, will bring eternal, compassionate rule. And so we'll just look at the two names this morning, and that will help us today. First of all, this title, Father. It's important for you to understand that what Isaiah is emphasizing is rule, not role. What do I mean by that? Well, when we think of the Trinity, one God and three persons, we think God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
and that's typically the way uh, we ascribe the titles to God of these of the three persons that make up the one God in the way the Trinity is expressed. I know it's an astoundingly difficult concept. It's one that we embrace by faith and the truth of the word. Uh, it's, it fails us to find a good analogy to describe it to people. Uh, and we walk forward by faith, believing one God in three person. And so when we think then God the Father, we typically will think of uh, God and the, the member of the Trinity who foresees and who foreknows, um, who the Son submits to. He says, I've come not to do my will, but the will of my Father in heaven who has sent me. And these are roles. These are roles that each person of the, of the Trinity take place. That's not what Isaiah is talking about here, though. Isaiah is talking about rule, not role. And the indication to us of that is that he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about a king who's going to come, who's going to rule you in a completely different way than you've ever been ruled before. The best ruler you've ever had, Israel, maybe King David, will pale in comparison to the way King Jesus will rule. Uh, the, the greatest king who turns the nation back, Joab, as a boy, will pale in comparison to the way King Jesus will rule you with the word. The wisdom of Solomon will be nothing compared to the wisdom of the Messiah. And so he's describing the way the Messiah will rule, not the role that he's fulfilling in the Trinity. And so that's critical for us to understand because we're not going to be looking then primarily at God the Father, the member of the Trinity, with the way he operates, but the way Jesus will rule. And so he wants us to know, first of all, he's going to rule as a father. And when you think of a father, everlasting father, there are two emphases in the Bible with that term. The first is as your creator. It's an understanding of authority. Uh, we can see it in a few texts here that might help you. Malachi 2.10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? In other words, because he's our creator and because our forefathers before us are our progenitor, without them we don't exist, right? right? If you don't have a dad, you don't exist. You've got to have a dad to be on this planet. Well, because of that, that should bring a degree of deference. Not just biblical honor and obedience, but the recognition of deference because this is my dad. I remember one time telling, me, telling my dad in, in all of my, I don't know, teenage wisdom, I don't know how old I was. Well, I didn't ask to be born. Yeah, that, you know, what a rock-solid philosophy of life there. And I, I don't remember what my dad said, but uh, at some point, that wasn't the only one time that came out of my foolish mouth and heart. Um, I think at one point my dad did look at me and say, well, I didn't ask for a rebellious son either, but here we are. So let's move forward. But the emphasis is without them, you don't exist, so there should be a degree of deference. You can see it extended in these other verses. Do you repay the Lord? You foolish and senseless people, is not he your father who created you and made you and established you? The, the expectation is one of deference and obedience. Or in Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. We live in a time that is authority averse. We live in a culture right now that believes that authority is the problem. Maybe because we've seen so many tyrants, maybe because we've experienced tyranny itself, our typical reaction is to suspect any kind of authority. It's to question anyone who would tell us what to do. Part of the emphasis, though, of Jesus coming as the everlasting Father is an expectation of submission. You'll obey Him. 
When the Messiah comes, what he says goes, and we will do. And Isaiah uses that language that Paul will essentially borrow when we get to Romans chapter 9 and say, as your maker, as your creator, is he not the potter? Are you not the clay? Can he not do with you whatever he wants to do? And we understand that in the role, the mechanism of creation, creation happened through the handiwork of Jesus. He is the one who forms us and forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes life into them. Submission is never easy because we are all sinners. I think all too often we think our submission is hard because of our authority. And to be clear, authorities can make submission more difficult. But our submission problems have everything to do with our own heart condition. And Jesus is the kindest, most gracious ruler that we could ever have, and yet we struggle. Submission is never easy because we are sinners, but submitting to a good father at least puts some asphalt on the uphill road. (laughs) At least smooths it out. Even as earthly fathers, we can help smooth the path for submission for our children through kind, gracious, wise, loving, and humble leadership to them. Owning our own faults and failures, pointing them to Christ, understanding that our key role as fathers is to image Jesus to our children. That's our number one job. Show them Christ and show them the reality that we're not Christ either. We're not the Messiah. We're not the end of it all, but we can point them to one who is. And so the emphasis, first emphasis when we see Father is as one of creator. But the second emphasis that we see in the Bible of a father is one of closeness. I find this fascinating because so many, uh, and some of it seems to have been generational, but so often fathers are not close with their children but when you look in the bible you actually see a great deal of relational closeness and proximity in jeremiah in chapter 3 highlights it in two different ways first in verse 19 i said i would set you among my sons give you a pleasant land a heritage most beautiful nations and i thought you would call me my father and will not turn from following me he thought that by blessing you he thought that by extending his grace and his mercy to the nation of israel they would recognize him as their father as their ruler and there would be a relational connection he's not trying to buy affection but his anticipation is that his gift would make a way from him and by blessing you and caring for you and loving you and 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 looking out for you that somehow that would produce in you relational proximity or earlier in jeremiah 3 have you not just now called to my father You're the friend of my youth. Fathers are called to love, nurture, and guide their children. They're to lay down their lives for their safety. Dads are to play with their kids, disciple their kids, discipline their kids, and spend time with their children out of a heart of deep and tender affection. More recent studies have demonstrated the vital role that fathers play in the lives of their children. Dads raise their kids in completely different ways. They relate to their children in completely different ways, typically, than moms do. There was one divorce attorney uh, who took up the charge to help dads get rights with their kids. Uh, I don't remember if she's in Utah or or in Nevada. And she noticed a trend that, that dads would be put on the stand, and they'd be questioned, and what the attorneys for the mom was trying to prove is this dad's not connected to my kid. And so I would ask him, what's the name of his doctor? What, what, who are the name of his teachers? Uh, what grades did he get last month? What, what school does he go to? What's his favorite sandwich that he likes to eat? And dads rarely knew the answers to any of them. 
And she suddenly realized it's because dads relate to their kids differently. And so she started asking, what's their favorite video game? What dessert do they like to eat before they eat their dinner? What's the best, their favorite imaginary game they like to play with you? What would be their favorite car they'd like to own or to drive? Tell us a time that you laughed with your kid till you cried or they wet themselves. And the dads knew all the answers to those because they simply relate to their kids differently. Not less than a mom, but differently. Research has shown that fathers who are connected to their children, children are more well-adjusted relationally, are less violent, less prone to bullying themselves or being bullied by others. They learn to navigate life better. They tend to be more more ambitious, more self-assured, and more confident. Nothing helps, listen to me now, nothing helps a young daughter's body image more than a father's affirmation. This has been proven between the ages of 12 and 15. It's amazing. They need dads. They need a relational connection and closeness with their children. And the Bible references this. It picks up on this. It helps us to understand that when children feel and they're loved by their dads, they are, more, they are better adapted to just do life. God made children to be parented by dads included. And this relational closeness is critical even as if we fulfill what the Bible would call us to do. Dads tend to be the primary disciplinarians in the home, as they should be. Well, it's really hard to discipline if you don't have relational closeness. We've all been disciplined by somebody who doesn't care about us. We've all experienced some uh, abject, distant authority making, making some rule that brings consequences, and they, we know they don't care about us or love us. And so when you have a father and he's trying to fulfill the biblical mandate of being the primary disciplinarian and discipler of his children, uh, and suddenly he's not doing that relationally close, but he's disciplining them, you can create a great deal of angst in the heart of a child. Who is this man who, who doesn't spend time with me, doesn't play with me? I'm not convinced he loves me. Maybe even older generationally, they wouldn't even tell their children very much they love them. As though it's the job to make them tough or hard, instead of it's their job to make them like Jesus. Instead, tragedy can occur when a father who's not relationally connected to his child tries to come in and bring difficult things into the life of their child. And so we call upon dads to have this relational connection, this relational closeness with them, to be invested in their life. They wield their authority in a way that would teach them and comfort them and bring kindness into their life. God says that Jesus will come and he will be a father. He will rule like a dad to us. And so we understand father we begin to think about the darkness of life and living in an unstable and confusing and sorrowing world. And our heart craves this. Uh, The nation of Israel is longing for this. This is why they're crying out to Gideon saying, give us your son, give us your grandson, you stay as king over us. Because what happens when dad goes away? What happens when dad is gone? Or he's taken out of the picture or out of the situation. And it's where Isaiah then points our hearts to the reality of him being the everlasting father. It's a recognition that we need more than just a lifetime of fathering. We need an eternity of fathering rule. It's a recognition by the nation of Israel that this cycle of good and evil is destroying our nation. 
that you can have Solomon, but he's followed by Rehoboam, who splits the nation. You can have Hezekiah, but he's followed by Manasseh, who leads the nation to sacrifice their own children to Molech. They need something that will last a long time. And so I would point your hearts to three things that happen when dad goes away or when dad dies and why the desperate need is that our ruler and our Messiah would be everlasting and not temporary. I think the first thing, and I've alliterated them, the first thing would be strategy. In the nation of Israel at this time, they needed to wage the war against uh, the Moabites. They didn't know what to do, and so God's strategy through Gideon comes onto the scene. We might think of it in more, more modern terms with wisdom. Uh, instruction. When you lose dad, you lose a lifetime of wisdom and instruction. I remain convinced that my father forgot more than I'll ever learn. More than I'll ever know. Little tips and tricks. Uh, just this past week or two, something would happen in our home, something was broken, and I would look at one of my children and say, oh, you should do it this way, you should try this. And, and a few times they've been amazed, how did you know that that would work? You're 47, right? But when dad is gone, you lose that. This past weekend, tornadoes ripped through right where my younger brother and my mom live. Uh, within a mile of where my brother lives, some people's homes were rendered to matchsticks. My brother's window was blown out, car totaled, uh, multiple, he's counted 12 plus holes in his home where two by fours were sent flying through the air, punched holes through the siding into the sheathing. You could see the exposed insulation. He and his three children and his wife are all safe. We're thankful. That's what matters. But as I'm talking to my brother on the phone last night, I was bemoaning the reality that our dad is gone. Because my dad would have had so much wisdom for him of what to do next and how to proceed and how to function. When dad leaves the scene, you lose that. When he tells us that Jesus is our everlasting father, we'll never lose that. We'll never lose the one that we can cry out to. God, I don't know what to do. Can you give me hope and help? God, I'm not sure what to do in this. And in fact, he even tells us in the book of James, we're in the midst of a difficult or confusing time. If any of you lacks wisdom, you can cry out to him and he'll give it to you freely when you believe by faith that he will, that he cares for you. And here's that moment. If you ever question, I don't know, am I bothering him? Is this a frustration to him? Is he annoyed with me because he thinks I should know better? The answer is no, because remember, he's father. And I can tell you this, as a dad and as a son, good dads delight in giving advice that's helpful. And all too often as a child, my greatest problem was rejecting the advice, not my father's unwillingness to give it. Do we ever walk towards God that way? An unwillingness to hear, an unwillingness to listen? Then let our hearts be warmed with the truth this Christmas that when Messiah comes, he's an everlasting father, always there, eternally ready to give us the wisdom, the strategy for life, and the next steps of what to do. In the midst of darkness and confusion and instability, we can turn to him. I think the second thing you lose when you lose the dad is you lose safety. When the Bible wanted to describe people that were vulnerable and weak, described them in three ways, sojourners. In other words, they're, they're separate from their land. They, there is an instability. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the other two ways are the direct product of the loss of the man of the home. Widows and orphans. Because there's a safety that happens when the father is in the home. At least there should be. There's a protection that takes place. 
there is an assuredness that if there's a danger that arises, dad will meet the danger. We all recognize that that father should be the first one to rush into any kind of riskiness. I like how John Piper puts it. He says this way, uh, he was talking specifically about marriage, but I'll tweak it to affect the whole family. He says this way, if there's a sound downstairs during the night and it might be a burglar, you don't say to the family, I'm important and tired. It's your turn to go check it out. I went last time. And I mean that even if your wife or your kid has a black belt in karate, after you've tried, they may finish off the burglar with one good kick to the solar plexus, but you better be unconscious on the floor or you're no man. That's written on your soul, brother, by God Almighty, bigger, little, stronger, weak, night or day. You go up against the enemy first. Woe to the dad that sends their family to fight their battle. Dads are designed to protect us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They stand in the gap against the enemy who would come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. They safeguard, they flourish and nourish their family and their children. They guard and they protect at the cost of themselves. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I've laid down my life for you. When the father is gone, the family as a whole and individuals are put at tremendous risk. Good fathers use their authority and their role to teach us, to give us wisdom. Good fathers use their role to give us safety in the midst of trouble. And so you feel exposed if the father were gone. And so God says, I'm going to give you an everlasting father. I'm actually going to take you who are orphans and I'm going to bring you in. And I'm going to give you a dad that would never leave you or forsake you. And in fact, if he ever does go away, and Jesus went away and his disciples were terrified, what did Jesus say? It's actually better right now that I go away from you because I'm going to send you the paraclete, the one who will comfort you and counsel you and who will walk with you and who will strengthen you and who will guide you. And one day I will call you back again to my own. And I only leave to prepare a place for you. So do not be afraid. And so when Jesus comes as the everlasting Father, when the Messiah arrives that way, He is telling us we are forever safe in Him. And do you know what you do when you feel safe? You rest. Now I can rest. Do you ever feel unsafe in this very dark world? And I'll call you to turn to your everlasting Father. Then thirdly, when a father goes away, there is a loss of stability. Uh, he talked about the sojourners who would travel the land and how they needed protection. And, and so they may be sojourning just to travel to a better place. They may be sojourners because they are migrant. They may be sojourners because they are nomadic. But frequently people are sojourners because something has happened. They have to move on. When there's a loss of stability, the enemy loves to swoop in. Who will rule next? When the king dies, there is tremendous danger of rebellion and of confusion. Who is going to rule next over us? That's why so frequently, particularly in England, when the king would die, they would say, the king has died, long live the king, talking about the next one. Our nation feared some level of transfer of power this past year. And there was a question of what was going to take place. We've seen in third world countries where in a transition of power, there's absolute rebellion and anarchy that can take place. Whenever the leader dies or is gone, 
there is a vacuum and the question is who is going to go into that void and it doesn't matter if it's in the life of the church the life of a government or in the home when stability is gone from the loss of the father the question is what evil person has just been waiting for this opportune moment you see it in lots of little ways when a dad dies how will the bills be paid the house repaired the cars fixed, the vacation planned, the yard taken care of, the groceries gotten, homework helped, or any other myriad of things a dad might do or has done in your life. I think in each home, the dad might fulfill a different role and have a different capacity. My father plants flowers. I, I learned when I got married 18 years ago, suddenly it's my job to plant flowers. I had no idea of that. Because my wife was raised in a home, that's what her dad does. It makes it beautiful and it's amazing. I, I know how to kill things, right? I don't know how to grow things. Suddenly it's a new role. Talking to my mom a few weeks ago, trying to care for widowed mom from a distance is hard. Um, I don't know that it's easier or closer, but it's hard. And she's having all these car problems. I mean, my dad, you know this. My dad is, is car guru. And he's gone. And what's the one thing that breaks? The car. And so how does she fix it? And how does she take care of it? And you just, you feel the void. The loss in that moment, and he's telling us he's the everlasting father. There will be permanent stability. For a king, how will the armies be arranged, the taxes organized, justice meted out, treaties signed, wars waged? How will the multitude of things happen that a king is supposed to do? We never have to fear the loss of stability with King Jesus. Not only is he the same yesterday and today, but he will be the same forever. Jesus is not shifting sand, but the solid rock on which we stand. His death wasn't the end. It was the beginning of his eternally stable rule. When Jesus is called everlasting Father, he's directing our hearts to the most tender, kind, wise, strong, safe leader that we could ever have. I think Revelation covers it best when he says this way, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I don't know about you this morning, but this Christmas season, I needed to be reminded that I have an everlasting father who puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Steve, don't be afraid. I am here. I've died. I rose again. And I hold the keys to all the power of hell that would seek to overwhelm you. The Messiah has come as our everlasting father. Darkness brings suppression and instability, but Messiah, the everlasting father, brings eternal, compassionate rule. Now, there's lots of ways you can honor a dad. There was a father in Wales, father of seven. They went on family vacation, and three of his children were drowning. He jumped in, saved three of his children. And the last child, he handed it to a lady, and she grabbed his hand, and he was, energy was gone, and he was swept away, and he drowned. And so they honored him. With a funeral service, they honored him with an obituary, but they honored him with a GoFundMe account. And I don't mean that tritely, but they honored him by raising monies to pay for his children and to care for them. 
There was a Michigan father a number of years ago was flying with his 11-year-old daughter in the northern parts of Michigan headed towards the UP. The plane ran into trouble, was coming down for a crash landing, and he threw himself over his 11-year-old daughter. She received scratches and bruises. She had broken ribs. All of her injuries only on the part of her that was not covered by her dad as he gave his own life in protecting her. How do they honor him? There's a memorial there. There's a plaque that honors the memory of that father. How do you honor the everlasting Father who's given His life for us. Communion. There's actually no better memorial than to say we are yours because you died. You are ours because you have resurrected. Because you laid down your life for us and you've rescued us from death. And so I don't really think there's even a better way to understand and to worship and to express gratitude for our everlasting Father than to celebrate Him together through communion. And so this morning, that's exactly what we are going to do. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move and transition into communion. Uh, we're going to do a few responsive readings. I know that that's sometimes new for our church. And so make sure you read out. You'll see it delineated when it's your turn to read. Uh, hopefully it won't be confusing to you at all as far as this is the time for the congregation to read. But let's pray and then memorialize our everlasting Father together. Father, we do thank you for your kindness and your grace, for your love and your mercy. We thank you for stability and for safety, Father. We thank you that you have seen our need as children and you relate to us with compassion and with sweet tenderness. We thank you, Lord, that you do not grow weary of our requests. We thank you, Lord, that you do not grow irritated with our frustrations or our struggles, even in our faith, but you deal with us with such gentleness and such kindness. And Lord, this morning, as we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, as we memorialize Jesus, Lord, I ask that we would do it in such a way that honors and glorifies you alone. And so, Lord, now may you be praised above all names, even as the everlasting Father. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.